You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. God is calling you to freedom, as Taylor said so beautifully. It's not a, some kind of political freedom. It's not some notion of religious freedom. It's this simple. It's the freedom to be who you're made to be. That's freedom. And when you and I believe that freedom is a possibility in our lives, we are going to have hope. Hope for ourselves and hope to share. So the Apostle Paul, as he moves through this great argument he's making, his case for hope in Romans chapter 5, verse, uh, chapter five through 8, um, takes us to the discussion of freedom. See, it's not enough for God to forgive you if you're still enslaved. He forgives you, but he also sets you free. And so Paul's argument progresses from a discussion of our forgiveness, which we were discussing last week, to our freedom. Now we find this in Romans chapter 6. We're kind of considering the whole chapter. You'll have a chance to discuss it more in depth in your small group. But I want to invite you just to notice a few of its features as we consider our freedom. See, because there's, there's, there's no hope killer. More vicious than slavery. Let me put it this way. We don't usually think of ourselves as enslaved. But how about your habits? Do you have any hope-killing habits in your life? Things that, if you were to be honest, uh, have control over you, or to use the language of the Apostle Paul, exercise dominion uh, over you. Rather than you having control over them, they have control over you. If you do, then you are like me and like so many of us, and we know we have a hope killer in our life. And Paul says, you've been saved for freedom. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6 and look at the the first four verses together. In fact, if you're able, would you stand with me? We'll read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 aloud together. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. A man named Olypius has his eyes closed. Because he's in a place that's dangerous for him. It was an arena. And the year is somewhere around 300 A.D. We get the story from the church father Augustine in his great book, Confessions. He tells a story that strikes me as remarkably contemporary. And let's see if you relate to it. Olypius sits in an arena with his eyes closed because he has a history with the sport 
that uh, they knew of as gladiatorial contests, where slaves would kill one another in a bloodbath for the entertainment of the crowds. Olypius grew up in a rather prominent family in Carthage, same town Augustine was from, and he ran with a rather rough crowd, and they would go to the arena often and watch this sport. It was the pornography of the Roman world, violence. And he loved it, and it loved him. But he began to try to put his life together. He started to study. He became a student of Augustine's. He even on, went ahead of Augustine to, from Carthage across the Mediterranean to Rome to further his life, to put his life back together, to get a career, to have a future. While he's there, some of his new friends in Rome invite him to the Roman Colosseum. And there he sits. He had said, no, 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 I don't do that anymore. But they said, ah, come on. And he went and he said, well, I will go just to show that I have mastery over this vice. I will be there in body, but I will not be there in spirit. And he closes his eyes. They find their seat. He sits down. There's a rumble in the crowd, anticipation, and you begin to hear the clink of metal and the groans and the moans. But at a certain moment, there is a squeal of delight and a roar that comes from the crowd. Just out of nowhere, the crowd goes just wild with enthusiasm. And Olypius says it thrilled him. And he can no longer keep his eyes closed. And he looks, and he says to himself, he looks so that he can be horrified at how awful this sport is. But when he opens his eyes, it does not horrify him. It draws him right back into that old hope-killing habit that really has possession of his heart. Augustine said he drew a deep drink, a draft of savage passion. And he began to join the crowd. He was no longer the man who came to the arena, Augustine writes. He watched and cheered and grew hot with excitement. And when he left the arena, he carried away with him a diseased mind, which would leave him no peace until he came back again. He's addicted. Augustine said that the wound that Olypius suffered on that day in his soul was worse than the wound that the gladiator experienced when the crowds erupted. See, what, what Olypius has, this wound, it's a hope-killing habit. There's a sign up in Alaska that says, Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. <laughs> and you and I have made choices in our lives that begin to add up to a pattern that begin to be Less a lifestyle than a rut. They say that a rut is just a grave with the ends knocked off. We all have habits that get in the way of the life that we really feel we are meant to live but cannot live because these things keep coming back. And we make ourselves promises. We say to ourselves, I'll never do it again. We make resolutions to our spouses, our loved ones, to our employers, our managers, our clients, our customers, our teachers. I'm sorry, it was wrong. But you can count on me. But you can't. You can't count on me. I've done it before, and I'm going to do it again. And it kills me. 
It's a hope killer. We're virtually addicted to things like anger or work or sex or overeating or spending, worry, one of my personal favorites. Or another of mine, self-pity. Go back to that well frequently. Alcohol, jealousy, bitterness. What do you do about these things? What can you do about them? Someone said this week, you know, I've tried everything. I've tried everything I could do. And you know, that's the truth. This person had tried everything. And maybe you have too. And it's not enough. And the good news of the gospel is, though, we are not left with our everything. It's that God in Jesus Christ has come to do that which is impossible, to bring life out of death itself, to bring freedom out of slavery. And that's what Paul's writing about now. It's not just enough to know that you're forgiven, that you've got a ticket to heaven, that your slate is clean, that you've been justified, as we talked about last week. No, God wants you to live free lives, to walk in newness of life. This is what grace is all about. It's not something we do. You can try as hard as you want, but you can never deliver yourself from the brokenness in your life. You can never do it. I can never do it. And there's only one who can, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's the one who wants to even more than you do. So, it's grace. And yet, the Apostle Paul, he's practical, and he wants to offer uh, what I call two great obligations of grace. There are two steps to freedom. And he shares them with the Romans. Two steps that are good for them and they're good for you and they're good for me and they, will, they begin to lift us out of those hope-killing habits and give us a real experience of freedom in this life. They're obligations of grace. They're not conditions of grace. They, they, they're things that follow God's grace in your life. It's the way that you and I can participate in what he has done and experience more of it. So here's the first step to freedom. He gives it to us in verse 11, and it's this. Consider yourselves. I want to invite you this morning to consider yourselves. That's what Paul's inviting the Romans to do. Consider yourselves. Verse 11 says, so you you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And you must consider yourselves alive to God in Christ. Consider yourselves. It's kind of curious uh, because one of the things that's so true of habits is that they're not considered behaviors. That's kind of what a habit is. It's something you don't really think that much about. It's just something that you do. You may have seen the New York Times article uh, a few weekends ago. And it was the cover article. It was about how marketers, with all the technological sophistication that we have today, have learned to capitalize on your habits. And they refer to some research that's been done recently at MIT. and And they say, here's a habit. It has three components. First, there's a cue. And then there's a routine. And then there's a reward. Those three habits, cue, routine, and reward. And what's interesting is that we don't tend to think very much about our habits. We don't consider them much. See, when they look at mice who are uh, moving through these three phases, there's a lot of brain activity at the cue. There's a lot of brain activity at the reward. But there becomes very little brain activity 
during the routine. At first, that's not the case. They have to think their way through the maze. And, there, and there's a lot of, of, of mental activity. But with time, that diminishes. And pretty soon, there's almost no mental activity. And that's really what a habit is. It's, 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 a, a, it's a bunch of activities that we thought about once and we no longer think about anymore. We've kind of grouped them together. The article says that habits allow our minds to conserve effort. Because we, we don't think our way through that anymore. We just don't think. And so it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says, I want you to think with me for a moment in the face of your habit. I want you to think. What's your habit? So consider yourself in that context. Consider yourself, not just yourself. Because when I consider myself, I say, take me, I'm yours. I have no willpower whatsoever. But he says, no, consider yourself after you've considered Jesus. Jesus, the one who has died and come back again to life. This is right out of the Apostle Paul's own experience. He was Saul, now he's Paul. He was enslaved, now he's beginning this process of freedom. And the hinge point in that whole experience is a face-to-face encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. For him, the death and resurrection of Jesus are the glasses through which he now views all of life. And he says, when Jesus died, you died. He came to identify with you. And when Jesus rose, you rose. He came to identify with you. The key word all the way through this section is the word with. Again and again, he says, we've been united with him in his death. We will be united with him in his resurrection. We've died with Christ. We will live with Christ. It's not just enough to know that Jesus has died for your sins. You have to know in the face of your temptations and these habits that you you have died with Jesus and that you now live as Jesus lives with him. I think it's important because in the dynamics of these habits, we tend to experience a lot of shame. We find ourselves trapped in pornography or alcohol abuse or greed. And in the midst of that, when it, when it comes to our attention that this is what we've been all about and that we're really enslaved to this, we tend to say what? You idiot, there you go again. How do we consider ourselves? As victims, as scum, as perpetrators of the worst order. And Paul says, no, 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 don't consider yourself that way. You consider yourself dead with Jesus and alive with Jesus. Think about yourself that way. So often when we have fallen into these habits, we don't want to ask for forgiveness we, we don't dare ask our friends for forgiveness. We don't even dare ask God for forgiveness because we say, who am I to come back and say I'm sorry to you again? Those words can't have any more meaning to you. I've said them a thousand times before. I must not really mean it. And so we don't seek forgiveness. Because look at who I am. Paul says, no, you considered Jesus Christ. Here's an interesting thing about freedom. We've misunderstood freedom in our culture. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do at any given point in time. Freedom is the ability to become who you are. It's it's the ability to make a choice that's consistent with your true nature. And if you think your true nature stinks, well, guess what choices are going to flow from that? But the minute you and I begin to believe that we really are alive in Christ, His beloved children, ruling in life with Him, we will have the freedom to make choices that are consistent with that identity. 
See, that's the problem with a slave. It's not that he can't choose whatever he wants to do at any given point. It's that he's no longer free to choose to act out of the dignity of his humanity. So consider yourselves. Uh, Philip Payne, one of our members, I don't know if Philip's in this service, he sent me an email, and I want to share this with you. He said, you know, every time I think about Romans 6, I think about Oliver Twist. And I want to establish that link in your mind as well. Do you remember the song, Oliver Twist, about this boy who's been adopted into this, this gang? And it only calls to our attention how great it is that we've been adopted into, not a gang, but to the family of God. And there's a song, Consider Yourself at Home. I'm getting to hear it. And I better hear it because otherwise you're going to hear me sing it. And you don't want to trust me. <laughs> you want to hear. So let's change the words. How about instead of consider yourself at home, consider yourself in Christ. You ready to sing? Consider yourself in Christ. Consider yourself one of God's family. You've taken to you so strong. I'm sure we're going to get along. Oh, you guys are great. <laughs> And they're clapping, but they're, they're hoping I won't show up at the next rehearsal. <laughs> First step to freedom is to consider yourselves in Christ. The second step to freedom is to present yourself. Present yourselves, what Paul says in verse 13. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God. There's really a surprise here. And I, I, while we were looking at this verse, notice it. There's a parallel construction here. There's a compare and a contrast. And it's not, it's not balanced. What we, we, we would expect Paul to say is, uh, no longer present your members to sin. Okay, he says that. But present them, therefore, to righteousness. We'd expect him to say, stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff. Withdraw the, your members, the parts of who you are, from actions that are not good actions, and invest your, the parts of who you are, your members, in. but that's not what he says. No, he says, withdraw your members from things that are not good, but he says, present yourself, he's not talking about members anymore, he's talking about you, present yourself, not to righteousness or obedience, but to God. Present yourself to God. And that's so important. The image that Paul uses here as he moves into the second half of chapter 6 is slavery. And this is an image, a metaphor that would have made a lot of sense in Rome. I'm afraid it, it doesn't for us. We think of those who are enslaved as maybe a minority, you know, that maybe the addict is enslaved to his drug, but not me. I surely not a slave. But what's, what I discovered this week is how universal slavery was in Rome. Did you know this? Historians tell us that 85 to 90 percent of Roman society and much of Italy uh, were slaves or slave, are people of slave origin. 85 to 90 percent of Rome were either currently slaves as, as they read this letter or they had been slaves. Why is that? Slaves at this time were not so much debtor slaves. They were slaves of, of conquest. They were uh, foreigners who, who had lost battles to the Romans. And it wasn't just that. It was that under Roman law, two slaves could marry one another. And when they did, their children were enslaved. So there's kind of a baby boom going on in Rome at this time. And slaves are multiplying. So many slaves, we saw, there are a lot of Roman laws about the release of slaves to get people out of slavery. Uh, one of which was that by the age of 30, you could no longer be enslaved. We know there are slaves in Rome because in Romans chapter 16, when Paul gives his personal greetings to people, he names slaves and households that 
composed of slaves. Two uh, slave names that we know were always used of slaves is Andronicus and Urbanus. This is a community that most of them are or have been slaves. They know slavery is a powerful image. So when Paul says, hey, the habits in your life, they're like going back to slavery. How does that feel? He says, don't present yourselves to that. Present yourselves to God. You know the day that you were freed, that you were released from slavery? That's what God wants to do in your life. You know that feeling? That's what he's done in Jesus Christ. It's yours. Present yourself to him. I ask myself, when I am tempted, when I face one of these familiar habits in my life, why is it that I feel forced to do what I do? Why is it that I feel like if I don't indulge this habit, I somehow lose the essence of who I am, almost as though my very existence is threatened? I feel like I have to do it. What is it that I'm really after in these habits? You know, it's not the alcohol or the self-pity. There's something behind it that compels obedience from me. I have a slave master. My worry, my anxiety, my insecurity, something out there. There's an emptiness. Paul says, don't present yourself to that God anymore. You present yourself to the living God, Jesus Christ. I remember when I was... uh, just a few years ago, I was driving back to UPC after a Christmas vacation with my family in Idaho. I was worried about the passes and driving over and getting back here in time for work. And so I will admit, I drove a little bit too fast. I was, uh, it was early in the morning. And you know Idaho, right? Who's on the roads? You know, the sun wasn't up yet. And I'm, and I'm, I'm probably over 90 miles an hour. And, um, <laughs> but it was safe and, you know, it was fun. And, so I'm driving along, and, and my kids are all sleeping in the car, so no one's looking over your shoulder at the speedometer. You know how that goes. So, but, of course, what happens, and the tumblers light up the rearview mirror, and I'm pulled over. Now all the kids are awake, and they're terrified because Dad's about to be arrested. And they you know, see this too often. Mom never drives this way. <laughs> and I, I feel off when I think, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. I have a pretty good driving record. I do drive too fast, but uh, it's kind of this habit that I have. And, but usually I don't get caught. And so here I get caught, and I thought, well, this will, I'm chastened. Uh, okay, and I'm sorry. So I apologize to everybody, and we drive on. Uh, that kept me from speeding at least for about 20 minutes, and no sooner had we crossed into Washington than, you know what happens again? Another patrol car pulls me over. Two tickets in one day. That's a habit. That's a rut. I, you know, it's not, not something I thought through, but here's the deal. What am I presenting myself to? I'm presenting myself to my anxiety. Will we get over the past? My fears? I'm not even thinking about it. But those are the things that have play in their, in their compelling obedience in me. Had I, had I been willing in that moment to present myself to God, I might have said, God, you know when I need to be there. You're big enough to make whatever happens while I'm gone happen. You're, over, you're, you're in control of the weather. You can keep us safe. You know, all, all of these things, and I, and I, would have, I could have driven 67 degree, uh, miles per hour, you know, right? But instead, uh, I'm speeding. It's my habit. So the second step is to present yourselves to God. What if God were in the car with you? What if God were right there in your moment of temptation? See, the thing that uh, Augustine says about uh, Lippius is so interesting to me. He says, the weakness of his soul was in relying upon himself instead of trusting in God. 
He actually writes this as a letter to God. He says, the weakness of his soul was in relying upon himself instead of trusting in you. Jesus is the one who is the liberator. He came to set the captives free. He says in John 8, 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Let's present ourselves to him. We can't present ourselves to anything else. You know, the New York Times article doesn't land there. Where it ends is, you've got to exchange your bad habits for some better habits. To me, that's not getting rid of addiction. That's just swapping out one addiction for another. Maybe one addiction is more socially acceptable than the other, but you're still enslaved. Don't present yourself to anything else but the one who loves you and who gave his life for you. So consider yourselves alive in Christ and present yourselves to God. Consider and present Got a letter recently from one of our members who describes the kind of habit that I think you and I know very well. It was a habit of criticism. And this is what she writes. I was cruel to my little sister while we were growing up. And we had a broken relationship because of it. More than your average sibling squabbling, I routinely sought out opportunities to tear her down. I developed an automatic attack response to anything she said or did that I could call out for being slow, clumsy, or unintelligent. A few immature taunts are one thing, but add up a childhood's worth of daily comments and you've got yourself a deeply ingrained habit. I had a shovel, and with each offhanded insult, I dug the habit deeper. My parents saw the maltreatment and tried to intervene. They took me aside when I was a teenager and pointed out that what I was doing, uh, but I did not see it. By that point, the verbal attacks on my little sister were as natural to me as breathing. It wasn't until adulthood, after a lot of growing up and a lot of God working on me, that I felt the weight of what had been done to her. One day, a sort of Holy Spirit light bulb went off in my head, and I saw all the ways in which my now adult sister was insecure, and I felt directly responsible. Turns out she believed every lie that I told her about herself. Goes without saying that by that point, we hadn't been close for a long time. So that day, I wrote her a letter. I'm going to read you a little bit of the letter she shared with me. She says, Sister, I hated you when we were little, not because of anything you were or said or did. This may be hard for you to fully believe because I've spent so many years trying to convince you otherwise. But please know that my own self-hate fueled those feelings. In other words, it was me, not you. You were not my problem. I was my problem. I had my own bag of issues to deal with, feeling monstrously ugly, being picked on by dad, having a twin who matured before me. I felt so insecure about myself that sometimes the only thing that made me feel better was hurting you because then at least I was better than you. At least I had that. I'm sorry for doing this to you. She goes on in her letter to me and she says, I still struggle with not falling back into that deep trench I worked on for so long. See, it's a process. The difference now is that there's tension. I'm grateful for that tension because it means I get to choose to either revert to my previous training or forge a new path, a new routine of treatment towards her. And I'm not on my own here. The more I get to know the eyes of God, the easier it is for me to see my sister as he sees her. To this day, every time she calls me to share her life, to confide some sisterly thing, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the ability to make a 180 for the power of new habits, and that God caught me in this abuse before reconciliation was no longer possible. That's what Paul's testifying to, the power 
of, of new habits, of freedom in Jesus Christ. Would you dare to have that hope in your life as well? Jesus is the one who delivers us. And you know, by the way, we have to help each other with it. That's, that's part of how he works in community with one another. We're alive in Christ because we're alive together. He incarnates his grace. Someone needs to come alongside of you when you are stuck to hear your confession, to lay their hands on you, to pray for you, to allow you to resign as CEO of the universe and get a promotion to God's beloved daughter, God's beloved son. Is that not enough for us? And can we not begin to live out of that reality? It's interesting, when Augustine finally came to faith in Jesus Christ, and you may have heard this story, he was in a garden and he hears a child's voice saying, take and read. And he picks up a Bible and he begins to read and he happens to open up to Romans chapter uh, 16, Romans 13, excuse me, verse 14, where he reads this, let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, which were the habits of Augustine, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he turns. And you know who was with him in that garden that day? Olypius was with him. They had become friends and partners in academics. And having heard this voice and reading this verse, Augustine turns to him and he reads the very next verse, which is Romans 14.1, which is, Welcome those who are weak in faith. And Olypius takes that as God's word to him. And we see the ministry of these two men as they begin this long road towards recovery and freedom in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you give us hope that defies the brokenness of our lives and the patterns that have convinced us that we will never be what we have been, and yet you are here to say different. You have poured out your spirit. You are with us right now, inviting us into a freedom inviting us to take steps towards the new life that is the resurrection life that's already ours in Jesus Christ. Convince us of this. Help us to minister this grace to one another. And we also pray, Lord, that as we share our tithes and offerings, that these gifts would be multiplied by that same Spirit and draw others near and far, into your peace, your shalom, into the goodness for which they have been created. For you, the Creator, love this creation and have redeemed it in the Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.